I'm Robin Grant Moran. And I'm Julie McIsaac. And welcome to a very special bonus episode of Key Change. Last week on the podcast, we opened up our audience mailbag to answer your offer questions. And to help us out, we invited some friends from across the industry to weigh in and share their stories and perspectives. One of our guests was soprano Rebecca Kane. Because she was Canada's first Christine in The Phantom of the Opera, we reached out to her to get her thoughts on why the production is considered a musical and not an opera. But our conversation stretched way beyond The Phantom. Yeah, we had such a great time chatting with her. There were lots of good stories and a lot of laughter. So it just didn't feel right to keep all that insight and delight to ourselves. So we thought we would share it with all of you in this bonus episode. In Conversation with Rebecca Kane. Is there anything particular to Phantom of the Opera, Rebecca, in the sense that have people asked you over the years now, is it an opera? Is it a musical? How do you classify it? How do you navigate that crossover and that boundary? It's difficult, isn't it? Because you see, I would say Sweeney Todd is probably the finest opera of the second half of the 20th century. I wouldn't place Phantom in that category, (laughs) she said pointedly. (laughs) I guess if you do it in an opera house and it starts being worked into the rep, you can consider it an opera. As far as I'm concerned, you know, I was always a very old-fashioned, legit musical theatre singer. I sang exactly the same way. Stylistically, you change things a little, but then you wouldn't sing Monte Verdi the same way as you would sing Richard Strauss, would you? So um, for me, it was all singing and acting. And there's a wonderful quote, Gershwin and Alban Berg, somebody who's quite close, both of them very close to my heart, actually. I'm a big 20th century girl. And he said to he said to Berg something about, you know, is this good enough? And Alban Berg said, good music is good music. So I'm a great believer in that. Um, now, Rebecca, in preparing for this episode, we mentioned to Perrin Leach, so our new COC general director, that we'd be chatting with you. And it turns out there's a bit of a small world, opera world connection in there, and that he was a lighting technician at Glyndebourne around the same time, we believe, that you were there and where you made your premiere at Glyndebourne in the coronation of Popea. Oh, my God. Yes, I was I was Amor, and I was up on a shelf all night. It was a Peter Hall production. And then I had my little tiny aria, uh, and I remember the operator. I was pulled up on a wire. I flew. It's agony. I'd always wanted to fly. I didn't realize how painful it was. And the operator was drunk. <laughs> One night, he, he flew me into the wall. Smack. Richard Bradshaw conducted that, actually. <laughs> Yes, so I'd been in the chorus the year before, and um, and that's when Trevor Nunn had seen me. I'd already done a few musicals for uh, Cameron Mackintosh, but I wanted to be an opera singer, and everybody said you can't do both. So uh, I turned down West Side Story and went and was sang in the chorus at Glyndebourne, where I was cited by one Trevor Nunn, and without even really asking, I was washed and brought to his tent at the Royal Shakespeare Company and ended up in a musical called Les Miserables, and that became that. So uh, yeah, Glyndebourne was a big thing. That's amazing. How wonderful. The first year I was there, I sang in the chorus of Arabella. And then I then I went into Les Mis. And then they asked me back to do my Popea debut. I think because Trevor had taken such an interest in me and I had a nice pair of legs on me <laughs> as well, which was good for that, that role. 
uh, they asked me back. So that's, that, that summer I spent um, my time commuting between playing Cosette in Les Miserables and um, Amour in Glyndebourne. So I was singing opera and musicals at the same time. And I remember there were weeks at a time I didn't get a day off because sometimes we would have Sunday wow. performances. That was the summer of 86. So 85 was my chorus year and then 86. And then my opera career took off after that, thanks to uh, the Canadian Opera Company. Phantom was already a big hit by the time it arrived in Toronto. Did you anticipate what a lasting legacy it would have? No, I, you know, you don't, the, the, all these things you, you, you now know with the gift of hindsight. It's like when people ask me what it was like to, to make Les Mis. Well, we didn't realize it would be a musical that would then run for 35 years, you know, and so it was the same with Phantom. Having already done Phantom in London, I realized that it was going to be um, a big hit and that it was beautiful and glamorous and and you know it had been it had been very well sold in Toronto um, but it's only years later when people come to you and they say I saw you and I was a kid at the stage door and you took me backstage for a backstage tour or I used to draw my your costumes so I became a costume designer or you know I used to sing along with the recording in my bedroom and then I became Christine in the bus and truck tour and 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 went on to play Christine on Broadway so you you hear all these things much later but you know at the time you're just you're just doing a job and frankly with that job I was just trying to you know stay healthy stay upright and get through singing six performances a week of um of Lloyd Webber and uh, we know, Rebecca, that you've also appeared in many COC productions, uh, Lulu, uh, Cunning Little Vixen, Pamina and the Magic Flute, Despina yes. and Cosi, and Michaela mm-hmm. in Carmen. And yes. of these, we're curious, is there a standout role or a particular behind-the-scenes memory that comes to mind? Well, I mean, I think because Brian Dickey had left Glyndebourne and was running COC, I had, you know, fond dreams um, because I kept being pulled back into musicals. I'd been a young opera singer and... And I had done a couple of musicals and then gone to Glyndebourne and I was told that you couldn't do both. And then I was pulled into Phantom and, you know, I I, I never really trained. I, I left the Guildhall at 19. And so I just took the work that came along, but I, my heart was always in opera. So when I went to the COC, I had this little dream that maybe they might ask me to do something. But in my head, it was going to be something like Barbarina in The Marriage of Figaro. It was going to be a tiny little part for which I would be incredibly grateful to be doing. So when I got a letter in my my post at the Pantages or the Ed Mervis as it now is saying, would I consider taking on the role of Lulu? I had to sit down because I couldn't have think, I can't think of anybody that would have taken such a chance on me. And I remember that I went along to the um, to the press launch of that season. And I sat down to who was the man who was the critic at the star for years and years, William Littler, that's right. I sat down next to him and uh, he turned to me and he said, I expect you'd like to sing here one day. And I said, yes, well, you know, maybe I will. And then they handed out the press release and he flipped the page over. Everybody flipped the page over and it said, Rebecca Kane Lulu. And there was an audible intake of breath because no one thought I could do it. No one thought I could do it. And um, I just, I knew I had the high notes and I and I trusted Brian, who was a very good judge of voices and I had a year and a half to learn it.
And so it's basically what kept me sane, singing six shows a week of Christine. In some ways, it's my, it's my greatest acting role because I was having to play a woman so naive that she would take singing lessons from somebody standing behind a mirror in her dressing room and then follow this pervy creep down to a damp basement, you know? <laughs> I mean, at heart, I'm much more of a Mrs. Lovett. So this is the great acting role that I was doing. But, um, you know, it's very hard to extract the juice uh, six performances a week, but it was my job and I did it. So I had this fantastic thing that once a week I would go uh, and to the Canadian Opera Company and I would work on Lulu. And I did this for a year and a half. And I love that kind of music. I live for it. So for me, it kept me sane. I'd never done a role in an original language. So that was my first time singing a major role in an original language. Never done any role in an original language. I'd only ever sung opera in English before. I'd never sung a huge major role like that. And I'd never sung a major role with a, with a major opera company. So, I mean, it couldn't have been more in the deep end. And all the while, while doing this, um, you know, this big role and trying to keep myself sane. So it was wonderful. And I remember the company were so kind to me and the ensemble kids would always be hanging around in the sofas outside my practice room. And they really had every reason to hate my guts, you know, because I'd come in with very little experience and I was doing this incredible role. But I ended up feeling part of them. I ended up feeling like I had been part, I could cry talking about it. People like Wendy Nielsen, you know, and they became my friends and they were support. I think once they hung outside the dressing room door and they realized how hard I worked and that I had the chops to do it, they were hugely supportive. And the other one was Vixen, which meant a huge amount to me because um, it was the Maurice Sendak production. And I had been the first, I was going to say the first cast of Wild Things, but actually I, I don't mean the opera. I mean that I was that age that I read Where the Wild Things Are as a little, as a little girl, and I was a very much a wild thing. Uh, and, I, and that's a very much a North American production with raccoons and just the whole physicality of it all. So to me, that, I think the Vixen is, was me in a way. Um, I loved playing that role. And my father died during rehearsals. Um, and so, and I, I did it the following summer in, in Italy as well. So that means a, a huge amount to me. The company was so supportive for me because I had to get on that stage in a giant fox costume. I mean, it shows the kind of ridiculousness of what we do for a living. Because I went down to Philadelphia, he was in a hospital in Philadelphia. I saw my mom and sister for a couple of days and then got on the plane and came back, walked into a rehearsal hall, but put on my fake tail, got on my hands and knees and began biting the thighs of the women of the chorus pretending they were chickens I mean you know there's nothing going to take you out of tragedy and losing your dad um but it, that was a very rough job but I I so the vixen meant a lot to me and and all of them I love singing at the COC I was very very proud to be a member of the company and they were very good times so you've spoken about the challenges of being cast as a certain type of singer of a certain age what would you like to see the industry embrace in terms of how roles and casting are reimagined for the stage? I'm a musical theater performer and also an opera singer. Um, and I'm also a straight actress now. I've, I've also started doing plays. I'm terrified I'm going to get a television or a film job because I just feel like I can't cope with another genre at this point in my life. <laughs> um so obviously being a light lyric soprano, we are the first to walk the plank, um, which is heartbreaking because you just get to 40 and suddenly the jobs start to dry up. 
But in some ways, I remember being about 46 and going to New Zealand opera to do Elixir. And I got there and he said to me, right, I've set it in Napa Valley High School in 1985 and you're the prom queen. And I thought, ooh, I was 25 in 1985. So we're now playing back to a, a time that I actually lived in. And I'm playing younger than I was when I actually existed during this period of time. And it did my head in. Apart from the fact that at 45, you don't want to be playing an 18-year-old prom queen. You want to be playing a complicated 45-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. But this voice is considered to be a young person's voice. And it still sounds like an ingenue voice. So, uh, And it was interesting. I did a musical a few years ago. And they decided it was beautiful, beautiful musical. Um, and they decided after the first production that my voice didn't match the character. And I said, but I'm playing a refined, elegant woman of a certain age, and I am a refined, elegant woman of a certain age, and I sound like this. So why is there this idea that as you get older, your voice has to get lower and it gets harsher? I mean, I faked my way through Katisha, which is a great role, you know, chewing the scenery with musical theatre people around me so their voices were lighter. And I do Mother Abbess in, which is hilarious because, you know, if only they give me some cleavage and some lipstick, it would be fine. I just can't bear the costume. It's a wonderful role. I keep coming back to it because it's one of the few things that sopranos can do at my age in in musical theatre. But I don't really think I'm the right voice for it in some ways. It's very tricky, you know. Um, I did a wonderful piece called Abomination, in uh, for the Belfast Ensemble about a year and a half ago. And it was written by a composer I've been working for for years, Connor Mitchell, he's brilliant. And it was about, it sounds weird, but it was about uh, Northern Irish politics and this politician who hated homosexuality and uh, was caught out having an affair with a 16 year old boy. And it was this stonking role that was written for me about a woman my age who sounded like me. And it was going to be a huge, it was a huge hit. And we were going to take it everywhere. It was coming to the South Bank in London. It was going to go to all the festivals and boom, the pandemic happened. So um, yeah, it's it's difficult, but I sort of feel like as long as I can still stand and I can still sing and I can still act and, and having been lucky enough to always have a varied career from the age of 19, I will just continue to show up and uh, do what I can. I'm about to do a lovely um, a, a stream, a live stream of a Dave Malloy musical. Dave Malloy wrote um, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet on Broadway. And this is a piece I did about a year and a half ago about Rachmaninoff. And we're going to do a live stream of that. So uh, although that's mainly an acting role, I do a little bit of the Vespers at one point, but it's mainly an acting role. But yes, it's it's heartbreaking in a way that just for light lyric sopranos, just when you're getting to really get on top of your craft and you can't help feel that in some ways you failed in some way by aging, even though you won't be able to tell this on the podcast, but dear listeners, I look fabulous. Um, you know, <laughs> you can't help feeling that you've let yourself down by by aging, but but you don't want, I remember talking to somebody who was a wonderful carabino and I said, you must miss that role. She said, I don't want to be playing a 14 year old boy. And I didn't understand at the time, but I do now, you know. Well, and this is, it's part of a conversation we've had with other singers too, Rebecca, around the Mm. sense of I exist, I am who I am and the fullness of who I am with the voice that Mm -hmm. I have. So why isn't that reflected on the stages and the stories Mm -hmm. that we tell? So it's lovely to hear like this project abomination of of projects and new roles that are being created so that we can show up in the fullness of who we are on stage. And we'll be keeping our ears and eyes out for that project. 
Is there anything else, mm. any sort of pandemic musings that have come to the fore or things you've been working on that you'd like to share with us? I think like a lot of people, the first six months, I found it very difficult to sing because every time I opened my mouth, I just wanted to cry. So I left it. And then I, and then I thought, well, come on, you know, you've got to sing at this age. You will lose it. So I went back to the um, the Vakai exercises with the, the practical Italian guide to singing. I don't know what the impractical guide is, God forbid. But anyway, there's these little songs that he wrote that, and you sing the intervals. And I got back into it, and and then I had I was booked to do the Chichester Festival Theatre Christmas concert uh, when we were briefly open for um, social distance concerts, and that was a very classy gig, and that was live stream. So I had to get my chops up to do that. Uh, And then about the time that Biden got voted in and Trump got voted out, and I felt like I could stop staring at the television and being on constant alert for, you know, the rise of fascism and the virus, um, I realized that uh, a lot of a lot of sopranos were contact, have a fairly lively presence on, on social media and Twitter and and so people were contacting me and saying, can you tell me how to sing this phrase or this phrase? And I was singing into my phone um, and trying to give notes. And I had taught on a musical theatre course at the Trinity Conservatoire here in my 40s, about the time when things really flatlined for me before I reinvented and went back to being an actress again and going into musical theatre again. And Because I, I had to basically start from the beginning again and that took a lot of energy so I had some years where nothing was happening and I talked for about four years there and and I thought this is silly you know I should be I should not be giving this away I should be putting it out and and now that's amazing because it's something that this pandemic has brought us which is to democratize us in a way because I teach everybody from you know young women who are trained and um, could be singing the roles that I used to do tomorrow I, I decided I'd specialize in legit musical theater singing, old school legit. So no belting, no mixing, you know, the sound that I like to hear, which we're losing a lot because everybody mixes and belts. So we don't get the difference between the different voices like uh, Maria and Anita and uh, the Rogers and Hammersteins, you know, the voice that is always sort of indicated virginity, this purity. Um, and I really wanted to try and get that back again. But I also teach, I have a blind woman who works for Google in California. I have a little girl who sings in her dad's car workshop to me once a week in Alabama, you know, and some of these people, they don't want to be singers, but after half an hour or an hour with me, they've found their voice, they've sung a little better and they've, they've done something creative and they've expressed themselves uh, for an hour. And I can see the joy that that, that brings them. It's very tiring because you have to be even more performative when you're talking to your screen um, and particularly with people who are amateurs because you have to show them the level of of energy you need to expend to really be a singer and to be this kind of legit singer. So I just started doing that um, in February. And so that's what I'm doing basically with my afternoons now. Um, I just I just teach all afternoon. So um I didn't see myself coming back to teaching and I hope that I go back to doing more performing. But um, until then, you know, it keeps me off the sofa eating eclairs, which is basically I'm watching box sets, which is what I was doing before. Do you have a favorite from the Vakai songbook? Oh, yeah. Um, I can't remember which one it is. Um, What is that? Fifths? I think it's the fifths. 
I love that one. It's so pretty. It's so pretty. I don't know what it's about. It's probably about, you know, I am a trout that swam on a stream and got eaten by an <laughs> eagle or something like that. I don't know. I'm not connecting to the text, which is very naughty of me. <laughs> so we were wondering what you were really looking forward to once this is all done. I think I'll have to keep teaching. I quite like showing young women that, you know, you can be a strong mouthy, articulate, happy woman in her 60s and and doing all this stuff. So I like I like that side of things very much. Um, I like helping people. Um, what am I looking forward to? I want to go to the ballet. <laughs> I really want to go to the ballet. I love the ballet so much. You know, it's where I can sit there and I can listen to the music. I could never do it in a million years. So there's not that brain going, oh, I could do that better. Or why didn't I get that job? Or oh, maybe I should do more straight acting. There's nothing like that. I just sit there and I'm just lost in wonder at what these people can do. Kane was one of the sort of few people outside the show that I became really good friends with when I was in Toronto. And, you know, I've been desperate to see the Ratmansky, Romeo and Juliet, um, the, the, the ballet do. Um, so, yeah, I want to do that. I'd love to go and, and go somewhere other than, you know, my house, my four walls. I'd love to, to travel a bit. I think we all feel that way, don't we? You know, what's the last show you got to see live? Madam Butterfly with this amazing uh, Welsh soprano. I can't pronounce her last name. Natalia Romagnu, I think it is. She is phenomenal. She's the next Natrebko. On any given Sunday morning, where would we find you? Um, Probably on a yoga mat tied up like a pretzel. (laughs) What is the last show that you binge watched? Ooh, we've had a lot of binge watching. It was during the eclair period. Um, uh, we did first of all, we did Mad Men right from the beginning to the end, which is a work of genius when you watch it back to back because he sets it up right from the beginning all the way through all the themes. Absolutely incredible. Then we did Band of Brothers and the one that's set in the South Pacific, which was also deeply moving. Um, so yes, I mean <laughs> the last one. I mean, you never stop binge watching, do you? Really, at the moment. Is there an artist or song in your music collection that might surprise people? Oh, yeah. I love that Eminem one. You know, the famous one. Um, Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, there goes gravity. Choke. He's so mad, but he won't give up. I would give you my rendition, but I don't think the world is ready. (laughs) Yeah. I've got some really strange things. I love the talking heads one, you know. Um, the famous one. I love that. I've got oh, some the really, really, yes. You know, I've got some really strange things in my iPod. <laughs> love it. <laughs> this is a bit crazy. You know, you'll be going through my knicker drawer next. <laughs> <laughs> our last one is a burning question from one of our producers, actually. So you created the role of Cosette in Les Mis. Mm, mm. And we understand that your solo in the original was I Saw Him Once, which was right, yeah. replaced within my life uh, yes. for the Broadway production. So if you had to choose one. Which one has your heart of those two songs? Well, absolutely, in, in my life. I have all that I want. You are loving and gentle and good. But Papa, dear Papa, 
I mean, because um, the other one is not really a solo. It's the same tune as the trio. So what that means in the UK is the role has now been reduced to featured ensemble. So they don't even pay her as a soloist. The reason that was cut apparently was because it was felt to be uh, very like the uh, love theme from the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet film, which I think is Nino Rota. I saw him once, a little bit. But um, I just think they thought, oh, she's a dreary character. Let's cut everything. And then the role has been cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. Everybody sings about her all night, but it's just been made smaller and smaller and smaller, mm. you know, um, which, is a, which is a shame. But there you go. I'm very fond of Les I'm very mm. proud of something that is, you know, sung on whenever they erect a barricade anywhere in the world. It's, it's sung. And that's, that's, that show is very close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. We know this, thank we you. only reached out to you a little while ago and the fact that you were available and open to doing this after a day of teaching, we really appreciate it. You just tell Toronto that I want to do Sweeney Todd as Mrs. Lovett with my old mate, <gasps> Russell Braun. That's what I want to do. Yes, That's what I'd like please. to come back to Toronto. Russell Braun <laughs> and me doing Sweeney Todd because I'm much more Mrs. Lovett than I was ever Christine Daae. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right, tons of love. Thanks so much, Rebecca. We absolutely love chatting with Rebecca for our mailbag episode and for our special bonus edition of Key Change. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the first episode of our spring season on April 13th when we talk opera and contemporary art with Icelandic artist Ragnar Kjartansson and Adelina Vlas of the Art Gallery of Ontario. You'll hear what a great time we had. As a COC subscriber and member, your continued support is vital as we continue to bring opera everywhere. Learn more about the COC's reimagined programming at coc.ca.